We want to know the living and true God. We don't want to spend our lives believing lies and vanities. We want the true God, and we want to know about Him, and we want to lay hold of Him by faith, and we want to find great comfort and consolation in His attributes that He actually shares with us. This morning we considered truth and wisdom. Let us now consider His faithfulness that we just sang about from Lamentations chapter 3. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me for an opening verse of Scripture. The Lord Jehovah, our God, is infinitely faithful to ever fulfill His will, duties that He's committed Himself to perform, and to keep His word and promises that He's made to us. Great is His faithfulness. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, He is called the faithful God. In verse 9, Know therefore... That the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Now that doesn't mean that He stops being faithful and keeping His covenant and mercy towards you in the one thousandth and first generation. It is just an expression of Scripture meaning forever. And His covenant that He's made is with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is called the everlasting covenant. It was made before the foundation of the world. And you will be saved because of it. And you may trust in it. Know therefore. What is this sermon series called? Knowing God. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God the faithful God that keepeth covenant mercy. Thank you, Lord, for such wonderful words. Let's go to Lamentations and see the passage that we just sang moments ago. Lamentations chapter 3. It's between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It is the lamenting of Jeremiah at the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah by by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But in the midst of it, the Lord gives him some comfort And so I want you to look at a couple of verses there. Lamentation chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. We need to recall these things to mind, and that is why I'm preaching a series of messages on things that you partly know, and we're filling in some of the details, and we're helping remind us of the breadth of God's word as it describes to us his attributes. But that 21st verse says we need to recall things to our minds, therefore we have hope. If we forget these things, or if we get too busy in our lives to remember the God that we have and His nature will lose our hope. And so, Jeremiah remembers some of these things. It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because His compassions don't fail. Like ours fail toward others, our compassions go up and down, our passions go up and down, but God's are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness, and the Lord's our portion, therefore will I hope in Him. Put your hope in the Lord. And recall these things, and let's help each other recall them 
so that we can remember his faithfulness. You know, when someone is faithful, they're firm in their fidelity or allegiance to a person that they have bound themselves to by any tie. They're constant, they're loyal, they're true. They're true to one's word or professed belief. They're conscientious, they're thorough in the fulfillment of duties. They perform all that they have said they would do and all that their nature requires and calls for. And so the Lord is faithful. And I like the words that he is thorough in the fulfillment of all the duties and in the performance of all his promises that he's ever made us. He's faithful. He performs. He does what he says he would do. He does everything that's in his nature. He fulfills and keeps and works all the, all the promises and, and aspects and, and blessings of his covenant toward us. He never changes. Let's go to James chapter 1 and verse 17 and see another expression that was in the song that we just sang as well in the first verse, James chapter 1. It says this about God, every good gift and every perfect gift. This is the 17th verse of James chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We turn. We have some variableness in our natures. We, we have moods that affect us. And they should not. We don't want to be variable. We want people to be able to count on us and depend upon us. We want to fulfill our word. We want to be faithful because our God is faithful. We want to be like his children. But I want to tell you about God in the 17th verse. There is no variableness. Period. He never varies. And there's not even the shadow of his turning. You turn. He doesn't even have the shadow of it. We say sometimes beyond the shadow of a doubt. That's an extreme statement that we make that we have no doubts about it, but we don't even have a shadow of a doubt. We're so solidly convinced of a a particular thing. And so we should be convinced of God's great faithfulness. He will perform. He will keep all his promises. You can bet your time and eternity on it. You can bet your life in this world and your eternal life in the next world on it. You can face the curtain of death. He will be faithful. The fault and the problem is we are faithless and we are faulty in our lives, but he is not so. Since you're close by, turn back to the left one page and it'll be Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the same. This is a most magnificent, glorious being. The gods of the pagans, all imagine gods anyway, they would change. They would talk about the moods of their god and what their god was acting like at a particular time. But our God doesn't change in that way. Everything He has promised, He will perform. Everything that we depend upon and count upon, everything He's declared in His Word, He will do. Jesus Christ, the same. When you read the New Testament Scriptures and you see Him forgiving great sinners so mercifully, when you see Him forgiving the thief on the cross so easily and quickly, He is the same yesterday and today and forever. When Peter so impulsively and foolishly denied him 
And yet it was the Lord Jesus that looked at him and brought him to conviction about it so that he went and wept bitterly. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ that would ask him a few days later, Simon, lovest thou me more than these? And do that to him three times and say, feed my sheep. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He forgives. And he can still use a person that has sins in their life, that that, that sinned, and he can forgive them and use that person. Peter failed the Lord horribly. And yet, when we get to Acts chapter 1, between 40 and 50 days after the crucifixion of our Lord, it was Peter that was leading the rest of the apostles. It's Peter that has two books of the New Testament named after him. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today, and forever. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 says this. Malachi 3, 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Why didn't God burn up the rebellious Jews and the carnal and lazy Jews that Malachi describes because he had given promise that he wouldn't yet because his son was not here yet and he would use that nation for bringing his son into this world. I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If I changed and got fickle and responded to you the way that you treat me, I would consume you. But he doesn't. And he didn't. And Numbers twenty three nineteen, which we don't need to turn to since we looked at it this morning. God is not a man that he should repent. God is not a man that he should lie. What he has said, he will perform. Look at Psalm 121. Psalm 121. Has anyone ever slept on you? Have they ever slept in? And what they promised that they were going to do for you didn't get done that day because they slept in? Has that ever happened in your life? Tammy's not that bad, is she, Brother Mark? You keep saying amen. I was getting nervous. Maybe it was Lewis. Maybe it was Joshua. Hannah? For those of you listening, it's a brother, it's an amen brother sitting in the front row that was saying amen to having been disappointed by those sleeping in. Maybe he was referring to himself. Amen. Okay. I love Psalm 121. I will lift up, verse 1, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. How many of you are in need of help? Anyone in need of help for a job? Anyone have a limited time horizon on their given existing job? Well, we're going to lift up our eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He wants to remind you that your job isn't a big deal. He made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He's not going to let anything happen to you. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. This is what I like about Psalm 121. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. He's not going to doze off and forget. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Nothing's going to happen to you during the day or night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Believest thou this? This is the word of God. 
Believe it. He'll, ne- he'll neither slumber nor sleep. Now, when we deal with other gods, like Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18, when he's dealing with the prophets of Baal, and they had been praying to Baal all day, and Baal hadn't answered them, he said that maybe they needed to cry a little louder because their God was asleep. Now see, they make fun of other gods in the Bible, and that's why we do it. We want to be just like the Bible. We want to be just like God's prophets in the Bible. I love this about our God. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't even doze. When you're dozing, He's not. When you're asleep, He's not. He's working His perfect will for your life. What God starts, He finishes, including everything in your life. Look at Psalm 57 and verse 2. I don't want to spend very much time on on this particular point. But when the Lord makes certain promises, then I'm I'm going to read you a couple of them, it assumes and includes that you are taking advantage of and using His promise. It's not a fatalistic promise that He's going to do everything for you because you can lose some of his favor in your life by being foolish and rebellious against him. Psalm 57 and verse 2, I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. God has a book written, David recognized that book as having every feature of his anatomy written down that was fashioned in time as he grew in his mother's womb. Psalm 139 describes that. But there were other things that God had for David to do, and that was to build him a house, and that God was going to build David a house, and that from David's loins would come the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these things God performeth all things for me. God has a purpose for your life. And God is of such infinite wisdom that He is able to use in His purpose your obedience and diligence in obeying that God. So His purpose for you includes your obedience. There's only one being infinite enough to be able to arrange all of these beings with liberties and bring them to fulfillment. And so I'm exhorting you to make sure that you are as faithful to the Lord because He is going to be faithful to you as there are so many scriptures that declare. Look at Psalm 138. Psalm 138 The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. When mercy endures forever, that is faithfulness. Mercies are new every morning. That's what we read in Lamentations chapter 3. But the Lord will perfect, He'll bring it to completion, that which concerneth me. Now, God has a preceptive will that's declared in the pages of Scripture. God has a decorative will. His secret will, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 describes it, of what He is going to do. And so what God is going to do with your life may include some severe chastening and you being nearly a castaway in your life. But you, So you ought to be diligent and faithful in the duties that God has given you so that that which He has to perfect concerning you is of the best it can possibly be by you applying yourself the way that you should be. We are not fatalists, and I will never preach fatalism. 
Because I will say this about the Corinthians. There were Corinthians that were weak. Many were weak. Many were sick. And many were dead. Now, if you want to describe that as God perfecting their lives, then you are on the right path, but you're getting yourself confused. They should have been faithful. And then God would have finished the work that He had begun in them, and it would have been a glorious thing, rather than cutting them off and taking them out of this world because of their disrespect for the Lord's Supper. I don't want to get off on... Uh, and be waylaid. Look at Philippians chapter 1. I have preached this before, and there are some of these passages that you can go to and have it explained. Philippians chapter 1, it's a very similar verse. It's verse 6. Being confident of this very thing. Do you know why we can be confident in God? Because He is faithful. Because He will perform what He has said He would do. He will keep His word. He will be all that the Bible says God is, and that He has declared that He would be. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. As you apply yourself in seeking God, and God has converted you and saved you, he regenerated you, he has brought you the truth, as you are faithful and God performs his work, he will continue to perform it and perfect it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can cost yourself by denying some of those blessings in your life because He is not always going to override you and perfect you in spite of your sins. He didn't always do that with Israel. Though we read there were many a times when He held back His wrath, there were times when He let His wrath violently out against Israel and took them into captivity and some generations never saw the city of Jerusalem again. What God promises, He's going to perform. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. There's many verses we could use here. Isaiah chapter 9. I like this one. We we always use the sixth verse. And I I hope that in your reading and in your quoting and your memorizing, or if you ever share verse 6 of Isaiah 9 with anyone, that you'll add to it the seventh verse as well. Isaiah 9, 6. When God says He's going to do something, He'll do it. We make promises sometimes that we can't write the checks for. We can't, we can't finish it. Or we write checks that shouldn't be drawn because there's insufficient funds. Lord, help us. You know, the Bible says that a righteous man that's a true child of God in Psalm 15 is one that swears to his own hurt and still performs, even if it's costly. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. Upon the throne of David. And upon his kingdom. To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. On what basis do the promises of God get fulfilled? On what basis is God faithful? The zeal 
of the Lord of hosts. Now, if you think you have ever seen a zealous man or a zealous woman, it is not to be compared to the zeal of God for his son. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And if you are worried about our government, you are worrying about things that don't matter and are not your concern. This is the government you should be worried about, not worried about. This is the government you should be thinking about and delighting in. And notice that it says in verse 6, it's on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not on yours, and it's not on President Barack Obama's. It's on the Lord Jesus Christ's shoulders. And verse 7 says it's going to continue to increase. And the peace that his government is going to bring upon this world is going to increase Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. No one is going to disrupt the eternal plan of God and the executive office of the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfilling his kingdom and peace in this world. Because there's a day coming soon in which he's going to come and destroy all his enemies. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he will burn up this whole earth with fervent heat and melt every element in it. And then he will reign in righteousness over a new heaven and a new earth. That is a government that we should be excited about. That is the government that we should be serving. That is the government we should be talking about. That is the government we should be promoting. That is the government we should be reading about. I have seen everyone else who wants to get involved with other governments lose their place in the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible to be a good patriot and a great Christian. Because they're not cousins. They want you to think that they're cousins. But it's not part of Christianity to be a great American patriot. We will use this nation for what it gives us because we are strangers and pilgrims passing through here and this is the kingdom and this is the government and this is the future that we care about. It is going to be ordered and established with judgment and justice forever. And who's going to perform it? The electorate? Republicans? representatives of some form of government called a republic? Republic means nothing to me. This means everything to me. And I want it to mean everything to you. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's be involved in this government, in this king's kingship and his kingdom. Look at where faithfulness comes from. It comes from his promise to perform what he has said. If you can find Micah, there's a great little verse there that I've used recently, but it's worth seeing again. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah chapter 7. I know that some of you like Micah chapter 6, but in Micah chapter 7, there's a wonderful verse. Verse 20. Verse 18, we want to get verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He passes by the transgression of his church. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. In 1500 BC, God made promises to Abraham, and then they were to Isaac, and then they were to Jacob, and God is going to perform them because it says, Thou wilt perform. God will perform them. And these, the performance of this, 
A great part, part of it has already been fulfilled. It's the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you go read the testimonies in Luke chapters 1 and 2, you find quotations made about the promised redemption being made to Abraham, being fulfilled in John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Oh, God is faithful. He is so faithful that His faithfulness extends in our salvation from His foreknowledge of us to glorification. That chain in Romans chapter 8 that extends from verse 28 to verse 39, nothing can separate us. He that spared on His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? Right. It's impossible. It's all, it's all hooked together in the Lord Jesus Christ and the zeal of the Lord of hosts to perform His mercy that He promised Abraham and Isaac. In fact, the promise of eternal life that He promised before the world began. Titus 1-2. That's His faithfulness. It's based on His ability to perform, and He will perform it. Do you want a priest that's faithful? Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is the great priesthood chapter of, well, 5 is alongside it, but 7 is the most extensive priesthood chapter of the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 7, the Apostle Paul lists several features of Jesus Christ's priesthood that show him superior to the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Now we're not talking about the Roman Catholic priesthood because they are every foul bird as Revelation chapter 18 describes them. And we're not talking about the Mormons priests. We're talking about the Levitical priests which were truly God's priests. But Jesus is superior by many measures. But here's one of the measures and it has to do with his faithfulness. Verse 23 of Hebrews 7. And they, Israel, had many priests. Not just hundreds, not just thousands, not just ten thousands, but hundreds of thousands of priests. And they truly were many priests. Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. <laughs> they died. That keeps a man from being faithful. I promise I'll take you to a Detroit baseball game, then he dies. And that's hard to do. You can't take him to a game once you die. I just made that up. See what happens when I try to use a little illustration. You all look at me like, what in the world was that about? That's okay. I'd rather go back to Hebrews 7.23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. There had to be so many because as soon as this priest got old enough, he died. Then he had to be replaced by a priest that got old and died and got old and died and got old and died. So there were many. But this man... Hebrews 7.24, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. You want to talk about the faithfulness of God? You can go to the, you can go to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and you will always have a priest there who was tempted in all points like as you are, but without sin, and he's able to succor them that come through him. But let's keep reading because it's good stuff right here. This man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore? Because he never changes, and he's never going to be replaced, and he's never going to retire, and he's never going to retire on the job, and he's never going to slumber nor sleep. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is the faithfulness of God. He doesn't change. There isn't the shadow of turning with him. He's invariable. I change not, therefore you're not consumed. Jesus Christ is an unchangeable priesthood. He ever lives. Go to God. He doesn't change. You change. 
He's faithful. You're unfaithful. But He'll forgive us our sins by His faithfulness. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. of One of the first verses children should memorize. One of the first verses that all adults should know is 1 John 1, 9. It needs to be used very frequently. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And on what basis will He forgive us if we confess our sins? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. But who paid the price? The Lord Jesus Christ paid the price. They're paid for. People raping and they're grieving. They're drowning in their sins. They feel that God's forsaken them. God can't use them. They, they forget the fact that God sent Jesus Christ into this world for losers. He didn't send Jesus Christ for the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. And He's faithful. It's His faithfulness. You know what we want to do before we confess our sins? Is we want to win the victory over them, then we'll confess them. As soon as I can show the Lord... My, the victory over this particular sin, then I'll confess it, then He'll forgive me. That would be your faithfulness. Uh-uh. He just wants you to come to Him and say, I can't, I am so weak, I am so pitiful, I am so bad, I am so ugly, I am so dirty, I am so filthy, I am a sinner, I have perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, have mercy upon me. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Not God to be merciful to me who was a sinner, but now he's doing pretty good. God be merciful to me a sinner. That man goes down to his house justified. Because God is faithful. It's based on his faithfulness. Look at Psalm 37. I want you to love the word verily. Psalm 37. It's in your Bibles 113 times. Verily. What does it mean? It is so in truth. It is true. Truly. Indeed. Definitely. Psalm 37. There's so many things that could be said about God's faithfulness. Trust in the Lord, verse 3 of Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Absolutely, definitely, surely, and truly thou shalt be fed. Why? Because God is faithful and He will feed you. And the Bible uses that throughout both Testaments. Of course, we like places like John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Do you believe all those things? I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, truly, definitely, no other book in the Bible has the double combination of verily, truly, definitely, surely. Then he says it again, verily. I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now what do you want to call in question about that sentence? Any of you that have doubts in your consciences and minds, I want to take them away with the faithfulness of God. Verily, verily, I am truth. I'm speaking on behalf of God. I am true. I am faithful. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Oh, we do, Lord. He is the Son of God. We love Him. 
We believe. Help our unbelief. Everyone else you know waxes and wanes, sleeps, quits, retires, and dies. But he doesn't do any of the above. Praise his glorious name. You cannot count for sure on anyone you know for even a day. You can bet time and eternity on God's faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they can talk all they want about global warming, but they're all retarded liars. Because Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22 says, Oh, I'll read it to you, since it's not committed to the weak mind. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. If we have global warming, we've got bigger problems than it getting warm and no more cold. It means that there's no more earth. While the earth remaineth, there will be cold and heat. Oh, brethren, let's hold fast our profession of faith. You know what what it says in Hebrews 10.23? Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Yes. Yes. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. The priest, the king, the Lord, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Mediator, the Alpha, the Omega, the Bishop, the Shepherd of our souls is faithful. God is faithful. Let's be faithful. The evidence of eternal life is continuing in the gospel. It's not starting in it. It's staying in it and continuing in it. Please help me quickly look at patience and long-suffering. Patience. Patience is not waiting. It's a little tiny part of patience. It's so small that it can basically be overlooked. Patience is suffering or enduring pain, trouble, or evil with calmness and composure. The quality or capacity of so suffering or enduring. It's forbearance. It's long-suffering. It's longanimity. An old theological word for long-suffering under provocation of any kind. It's forbearance or bearing with others their faults or their limitations. That's what patience is. It's putting up with people irritating and provoking and disappointing you. And God's patience toward us is when we sin, we provoke Him, we rebel against Him, we're slothful, we're lazy Christians at times. We shouldn't be ever. But when we are, He shows us His patience by not coming down unduly hard and unduly quickly in judging us. He is the God of patience. Look at Romans 15. Romans 15. All of these subjects could be dealt with in so much more detail, but that isn't what we need. We just want to see God in all His glory. We want to look very briefly at these little facets of the traits of the attributes of His glorious nature and delight ourselves in them and find comfort for our souls in them, and then adopt these participatory attributes for ourselves. I want all of you to be faithful. Every father should be a faithful father. Every employee should be a faithful employee. Every church member should be a faithful church member. He is faithful that promised. He is faithful that saved us. Look at Romans 15 and verse 5. Now the God of patience... Is it that important that he would be called the God of patience? It it should be, and you should be thankful for it. Because that's why you're still here today. It's why I'm still here today. Now the God of patience and consolation, 
grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Do we irritate each other? Oh, yes. Do we irritate the Lord? Oh, yes. But He's the God of all patience, and He puts up with us provoking Him, and we should learn that same mind of putting up with others provoking us and forbear them in their irritation toward us. When God showed Moses His glory, or rather declared His his glory to Moses, what was one of the first things He mentioned in Exodus 34 and verse 6? His long-suffering. Exodus 34 and verse 6. His long-suffering. Here's this God that could have declared, I am that I, and I'm not mocking him. I'm saying this is what some people think. I am that I am. But that's not what he declared. Or I am omnipotent. I am the almighty God. I can do anything and nothing is too hard for me. Those things are said in other places, but they're not said in Exodus 34 when God showed Moses his glory. Right. Do you know what his glory was? Long-suffering. Yeah. It's, Amen. Exodus 34 and verse 6, it reads this way. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. There's a couple of our attributes today. See, it's a childish mind that gets excited about power. We want to see fire from heaven. It's, it's the Pharisees of the Jews wanting to see a sign from heaven that you're the Son of God even though he had preached and taught and done miracles for three and a half years. Right. Let's, let's see his patience and realize we are dealing with a God that is glorious. That, that's what God considers his glory, is to declare his long-suffering. Look at Numbers 14 and verse 18, since you're not too far away. Numbers 14 and verse 18, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. That's somebody that's guilty. You say, well, I'm guilty. No, you're not. If you confess your sins, you are not guilty. You were in the first half of the verse. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But those who want to remain guilty by not confessing your sins and reforming your life, then enjoy the second half of the verse. Because it's to you. Believe it. Trust this forgiveness. Do you know the Bible how many times it says he's slow to anger, slow to wrath, slow to anger? Over and over again. I need Psalm 103, so let's go look at one of those occurrences in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, two of you young men have presented this psalm to us. It's delightful. It's wonderful. There's a couple of verses in it that I don't want you to ever forget. You need them every day. I need them every day. He is slow to anger. I want to remind you about something. If you are quick to anger, and you get provoked quickly and easily, and upset fast, you are not like God. You are not looking like a son of God. You are not acting like a Christian. You're not acting like you're born again. You don't know anything about anger. You have never been offended. The worst thing that anybody has ever done to you is nothing in comparison to what we do against God. 
and he is slow to anger. If there's anyone that should be, could be, might be, is justifiable in quick anger, it would be God. But he's the one that's slow to anger. And what do we, what do we fly off the handle for? Nothing. It is always nothing. Nothing. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. You know, if you grew up under a parent that was quick to anger, you might think that God is quick to anger. But he isn't. He's not like your parent. I just want you to take those three words and just embrace them in your hands, in your heart, and in your mind, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Notice where that anger is buried in that eighth verse. It's buried in mercy, grace, and plenty of mercy. And there it says, slow to anger. The idea that I sinned, I failed, and God is furious, and he's ready to rip me in pieces. What book have you been reading? Because you haven't been reading this one. He is slow to anger, and it says it over and over and over again. And if you need help, go back and read Psalm 78 again, the whole thing. And remember, out of 72 verses, you've only got two that are comforting. But do you know what? The two were enough to cover the 66, the other 70, to cover the other 70, so the nation still existed and continued to exist for thousands of years until the Lord Jesus Christ came in that particular shape as his church. Not only, not only is he slow to anger, he doesn't keep his anger for very long. Now, some burn fast and it's over. Some burn slow and long. Okay? We've all met those kinds, right? God is neither. He is slow to anger, and he doesn't hold it. Watch the next verse. 9. He will not always chide. Chide is to rebuke, correct, and remind you of your faults. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. You say, but he's God. He's eternal. He's angry with me. He's going to be angry with me forever. What book are you reading? Because I want to go burn it. It's not this one. Right. Go read Psalm 78 again. It says, many a time he turned away his wrath from Israel. I'm sorry that I'm so worked up on verses 38 and 39. The Lord spoke to me personally and comforted me very much about those two verses. He said, you have found all your comfort in Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14, but you are forgetting that I said the same thing in Psalm 78 verses 38 and 39. And so I now turn you to verses 13 and 14 in this same chapter, Psalm 103. Like as a father, this is the patience and long-suffering of God, and this is not the average father, this is not the normal father, this is an ideal father. Like as a father pitieth his children, not all fathers pity their children. Some fathers are incredibly picky. Some fathers are incredibly pressure-packed. Some fathers are constantly pushing. My children can make their judgments. It doesn't matter because I'm talking about the ideal father. I'm not talking about me. 
like as the ideal father pitieth his children, so the Lord, so as. Do you, do you see those little adverbs in there? As and so, like as, so, that means in the very same way. So the Lord pitieth them that fear him. A father is able to recognize that between 1 and 18, there are very different intellectual levels, physical abilities, and and memories to be able to perform the things assigned by a father. And so he doesn't require of a 2-year-old what he requires of a 16-year-old, and he doesn't require of a 4-year-old what he requires of a 14-year-old. Because he recognizes the frame of a 4-year-old is very different from a 16-year-old. Do you understand? Do you understand the full weight of these verses? I have used these verses so many times I cannot count them. And I want you to use them and I want to use them this way under the patience and long suffering of God. Like as a father, a good father, an ideal father pities his children and recognizes their weaknesses and does not require too much of them, nor, nor is he overbearing to them, nor is he overcritical of them. So the Lord pitieth them that fear him in the very same way. He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. I can't measure up. How many children have ever said that? I can't measure up. I can't do it the way he wants me to do it. The Lord never measures you too high. The Lord is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient. And I want you to take comfort and consolation in that. Because it's right here in Psalm 103 for you, verses 13 and 14. And now you should have a little writing in the margin that says Psalm 78, verses 38 and 39. But you know, when I look at my Oxford translators, they've already put it there for me. It's under the little letter E in my Oxford Bible. I want you to remember that. It's so comforting. Those verses to me, because I know what it's like to be a father. And whether my children think that I was very merciful or pity, pitied them or not, I know the times that I did pity them, and I know the times that I didn't pity them. But I know the Lord always pities in the proper measure, recognizing our frame. And so when we have sin that easily besets us, and we are in, we are in tempting situations, the Lord remembers the situation we are in. And I do not have time to chase all these rabbits and shoot them, but I want you to understand that there are situations in a man's life, like David's, where God held him accountable for sins and didn't hold him accountable for sins. Right. He sinned in both cases. Now, God held him accountable for adultery and murder because he had a harem of great wives that he had chosen. And he took another man's wife, and he killed that man for his wife. God remembered that all the days of David's life. And David paid for that one. But David did some other things like numbering Israel when God turned him over to Satan. Just remember, when God turns a man over to Satan, you'll never hear about that one again in the life of David. You'll never hear that one brought up again. Right. After killing the one man Uzzah for moving the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way, you'll never hear about that brought up again. That was an oversight in his great exuberance to serve the Lord. God took one man's life. But are you with me? There's a difference that God makes because he remembers our frame. David had no right not to be at battle with the other kings in the time of war. David had no right to get up that night and to be discontent when he had a whole hallway full of bedrooms with wives in them. He had no right to go look at another woman. He had no right to send a messenger, go get me that woman. He had no right once he found out that she was Uriah's wife to say, I want her anyway. He went through a whole chain of progression of sin, of a presumptuous form, and God remembered that. But there were so many things in David's life 
I gave you a list recently of all the sins in David's life that God was much more merciful toward. Remember that about the Lord. Run to him. You say, well, my hap- mine happens to be more like David's. Adultery and murder. Then run to him anyway and, said, I have sin- and say, I have sinned against the Lord. You know what comes back immediately? According to God's faithfulness, the Lord hath forgiven thy sin. Oh, I love those verses. His long-suffering should lead us to repentance. When God is long-suffering to us and hasn't judged us and we're still living and healthy and enjoying life and things are good, even though we know we have sin in our life, that long-suffering that He's showing to us shouldn't be a source of comfort while we have known sin. It should drive us to repent right then. Remember when I was preaching on preterism in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that some men count it slackness because God isn't judging that fast. But remember, his long-suffering is that he's not willing for any to perish. And we're to account, we're to do some accounting for that long-suffering that it's called salvation. In verse 15 of 2 Peter chapter 3, So let the long-suffering of God move you to repentance. What keeps you flying from to Him with any sin or sinful propensity, any sinful temptation in your life, any weakness or fault, Anytime you sin, what keeps you from running to Him and casting yourself on His mercy and saying, Father, forgive me, I have sinned in heaven and against you. Like the prodigal did to his father. What keeps us from saying, I have perverted that which was right, it profited me not, I have sinned. Because you've done it yesterday, or you did it an hour ago, you know there is so much mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ by His death, of the infinitely perfect Son of God on the cross, you can do it every hour and start over fresh. When God tells us that our limit on forgiveness is not seven times, but 70 times seven, what do you think His is? When He says plenteous in mercy, do you think it's 491? One more than that 490? Or do you think it's 495? Or do you think Jesus Christ paid it all? And so we run to Him. There is mercy with the Lord. What is holding you back? He is a patient and a long-suffering God. That means He puts up with us, but that putting up with us should drive us to His mercy seat to beg for forgiveness so that we can be clean before Him, clean in heart, clean in mind, clean in hands, and go forward. Are you that way with everyone else? Are you slow to wrath like your Heavenly Father? Look at Proverbs chapter 14. You're not far away. Proverbs 14, verse 17. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. And a man of wicked devices is hated. If you get angry quickly, according to Proverbs 14, 17, you are dealing foolishly. The Bible warns against that. Don't do that. We are to be slow to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, quick to hear. That's what we want to be in our relationship with others so that we look like our Heavenly Father. Is it because you have such a short fuse, you think God has a short fuse? Is it because you hold your anger for a long time or your grudge or your bitterness that you think God is like that? First of all, you should recognize that God is the way He is described in the Bible, not what you make Him out to be. Second of all, you should conform your life to be like God's, and every every one, every person, and everything in your life will improve. If you will be more like these attributes, these are why I'm calling them participatory because He lets us partake of the divine nature. We can be patient and long-suffering. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. 
true Christian charity is, what, how does it start off the definition of love? The greatest definition of love in the, in the history of the world. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Charity, I need the next two words. Suffereth, Suffereth long. Amen. Suffereth. That means it puts up with and allows the provocations and irritations and offenses of other people. And it does it for a long time. God does it with you. You're still alive. And you should do it with everyone else. Lord, help us to show this fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Examine yourself, brethren. Are you opposite of God? I'll close with this passage. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Oh, we've looked at four things today about our great and glorious God and Father. He is, he is the true God. There is absolute truth and He's given it to us. He is the only wise God. What wisdom He's given to us. And He is the faithful God. And He'll perform it by His own zeal. And He is the patient and long-suffering God. He is so merciful to us. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 9 through 15 is one of, uh, and it's verse 18. Verse, one through, verse 9 through 18 is a nine-verse sentence. It's one of the most jam-packed sentences in the Word of God, and it's glorious, but I want the first third. I want the first third. This is Paul's prayer for the Colossian saints. It's Paul's prayer by the Spirit because it's God's desire for you and me, and it's my prayer for you and me. Colossians 1.9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. And then it goes on with six more verses. That is a jam-packed, full prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Colossian saints. It's my prayer for you that God would work his perfect will in your lives and that you would be strengthened with his mighty power to be patient and long-suffering with joyfulness. Not to begrudge showing it to others, but to joyfully show it to others. And then maybe you'll have more peace in going to God, knowing that he's that way already, because you will be matching it in your own life. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word today that will be true and honest, will be wise and have sober answers of truth from God's word for people, that will be faithful in the performance of all of our duties and keeping our word, and will be patient and long-suffering with people offending us. Thank you, Father for your precious word.